Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Eric. Great to be in the house of God with you all tonight. If we haven't met before, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's my privilege to be able to be here and finish off this series we've been doing on the meaning of life. It's been a big, big series, a challenging series. We've gone through a whole bunch of topics. And so good news, if you've been uh, at home watching online, terrified to come here in person while we've talked about this, next week you can come back while Jen's preaching, right? So you can come back. It's all going to be really simple as Jenny preaches on what Jesus thinks about the moon landing being faked. So we're, it'll be really like low-key, really chill, really chill. No, that's a joke for all those who didn't laugh and are looking at me sideways. Um, it's it's going to be really, really good. Um, I think... I mean, I think this every week, but I particularly think in October, you should move heaven and earth to be in the room. It's going to be a really significant month. It's going to be a really fun month too, but it's going to be really significant in the life of our church as we press in. And, you know, I just, the more I think and pray about where we're going as a church, and particularly for October, right, I I feel like we're on the edge of something with fasting and spiritual breakthrough. And it's going, there's just going to be a cost. And the cost is, is to our flesh so we can fill our spirits. That's the aim behind fasting. And I, you know, this isn't a sermon about fasting, but I really want to encourage you that as you step into fasting, you will find significant spiritual breakthrough. In fact, I was talking to somebody yesterday who has already started a fast and they were just saying, ah, oh, the anointing, it's amazing. It's an amazing thing. And it is, it truly is. What I generally find is that people go, I might fast from something else apart from food. Don't do that, right? Don't do that. I promise you may think food is the easy thing. It is not. That is the thing that is truly at the, at the core of a lot of our idolatry. So fast from food and you wait and see what the Lord God does. All right, it's gonna be amazing. Be filled by the Spirit. Hey, uh, let's read some scripture, amen? amen? All right, that's what I like to hear. Genesis chapter one, right at the beginning. If you haven't worked it out already, so much important theology is in the first three chapters of Genesis. Talk about that another time. Start with verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Now, a whole series challenging our understanding of life and death and the human body. That's a lot. 
But it's the idea is being to bring us back to the central question of the 21st century, which I believe is what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? This is a question we ask ourselves again and again without thinking about it, and we live it out without thinking about it, but God's been challenging us this series. So we've constantly been using the theological ideas of the Imago Dei, that is, humans are formed in the image of God, and having our identity in Christ, which means no matter what our other influences are, the centre of who we are is found in Jesus Christ and from what Jesus says. So last week, Reverend Diane spoke beautifully about the importance of the poor to God, And so this week, we finish by looking at God's concern for all of creation. Let me take a quick drink and then I'll pray and we'll get cracking. Loving God, as we come before you tonight at the end of this series, um, we just again want to thank you for the gift of being convicted, that you call us to be humble and teachable constantly, that when you call us to break down the walls of our religion, it's not... Because faith is bad, it's because we build these things around you that are not of you. And so, Lord, we want to come back to you again and again with gentle hearts, ready to receive what you've got for us. So I pray that what comes to people's hearts tonight is not my words, but the conviction of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I was born and raised in the 80s. The 80s were a great time. Seemed fairly remote, though, from environmental awareness, I've got to say. And then Chernobyl melted down in Russia, and everyone went, what is going on? And then the Greenpeace vessel Rainbow Warrior sunk, and and Peter existed, and everyone's like, if you're an environmentalist, you're both crazy and dangerous. This is the basic message of the 80s. But I was a teenager of the 90s, and so suddenly the curbside recycling system comes in. You kids with your yellow bins, you don't know what we had before then. Which, which was nothing. That's what we had before then. And so trips to the bottle depot with dad became regular. And then uh, we had a particularly like environmentally savvy principal when I was in year seven. So we would go on these class tree planting trips up to Kuman Duke. And then we were watching ads on TV for these phone book book munching bins. This is a real thing. And we'd drive past creative environmental demonstrations at the top of the York Peninsula. Most of them are still there. Not to mention Captain Planet. Biggest cheer of the night for Captain Planet. <laughs> You're not singing it. By the new millennium. So you, can, you, can, you can all share it around. By the new millennium, our lives had completely changed. Environmentalism was less an option or a fad, but an ideal that most of us, if not all of us, went, okay, well, we believe in this to some degree. It's just a question of what we do with it. So we, now by this point, we understood concepts like recycling and the ozone layer and the greenhouse effect reasonably well at this point. So we didn't have the sort of Mr. Burns image, recycling, you know, in our, in, in our heads at all times, that, that confused look. We understood that stuff at this point. So we could move on to the slightly more complicated ideas like overpopulation and clean and renewable energy and climate change, these bigger issues. So we've been smothered with this information for 30 plus years. We understand a lot of it already. Why are the voices getting louder, not quieter? (laughs) Why does it seem like the problems are worse, not better, if we've had 30 years at least to talk about this stuff? And what should we as Christians do about it? Let's dive into theology first, because that's not going to take very long. A theology of creation care is really, really simple. This is how it goes. God is the creator of all things. Humanity has been made in His image. 
One of the primary tasks of humanity is to rule all of creation. Like we just read that, right? So if God created everything and he finished off with us and then told us to take care of it all, and that's our job, care for God's creation as if we were him, that's simple, right? That's it. That's the whole thing. That's really a theology of creation care right there. Yet our world is filled with smog and strip mining and species extinction and the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Which, if you're not familiar with that last one, and I know many of you will be, but it's an area of garbage in the Pacific Ocean that is currently three times the size of France, weighs about the equivalent of 500 jumbo jets, and is almost totally composed of plastic. That's a lot of garbage, and that's one of five patches. It is the biggest one, but there's five of these around our oceans. So our planet has not been stewarded the way God has asked us to. It's been primarily stewarded for our personal convenience and greed, so we have a simple theology, but a big problem. And if you haven't picked it up yet, I'm a bit of a closet greenie and I don't care about that. Like I actually think if you're a Christian, you have to be. You don't have to buy every ideology and we're going to get into that in a second. But you do have to believe in caring for the environment. That's not an option for the Christian. This is the only habitable planet we have right now. Like Elon's trying, I think, or, or getting in X wars, I don't know. But no matter what your opinions are in environmentalism, we need to be good at caring for our planet. It's where we live. Like, it's literally the air we breathe and the water we drink. So why aren't we good at this? Well, I think there's a few ideological issues here. Because on one hand, Greta Thunberg leads this generation of environmental activists that seem to be mostly trying to shame the world into changing their behaviours. And they seem to do this, the people in this sort of line of thinking, mostly by yelling angrily at people in general or gluing themselves to public property or, or shutting down public transport, like generally inconveniencing people. And mostly, my experience with that has been they, if anything, steer people to the other side because they find that sort of that kind of person very deeply off-putting. That doesn't exactly create change as well because they're often telling us that the planet is doomed. So that creates anxiety. People don't want to change if they feel anxious and doomed. That's a culture of alarmism and fatalistic fear-mongering. On the other hand, other people point to minimal or invented data to try to claim climate change doesn't exist or that nothing is happening to the planet at all. Melting ice sheets in the Arctic, rising sea levels, increased global temperatures, they're ignored or minimised. So often people on this side have an issue with the politics of the other side not the science, but because of the politics, they choose a different kind of science, which is, I would say, a culture of ignorance. It's the embrace of falsehoods and foolishness. I'm going to get into that in a second. Now, let me give an example of why this conversation is difficult. All right? Let's look at fossil fuels. Climate change activists would rightly point out this about fossil fuels, that carbon dioxide released from the extraction and consumption of fossil fuels, such as oil, coal and gas, is a major greenhouse gas contributing to global warming. So the UN would state that fossil fuels account for over 75% of all greenhouse gases and nearly 90% of all carbon dioxide emissions. And that is very alarming. That makes it clear we need to minimise or eliminate fossil fuels. Then you hear why fossil fuels are being used. Primarily to generate power, to manufacture goods, for transportation, for producing food, for powering buildings. I don't know about you guys, but I like all those things. They're quite important to me. 
It is mostly for positive reasons that we use fossil fuels. We cannot simply go, not using fossil fuels anymore. I was listening, I was doing a bit of research this week and, and reading an article where a, a, an environmental researcher was asked, like, should we just stop using fossil fuels? And they almost had a heart attack. They're like, no, 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 you can't do that. We, the human race would go on for probably less than a month at this point if we stop using fossil fuels immediately. Even phasing them out would take a lot of time but is also necessary. <laughs> Without moving towards sustainable energy, we're creating excessive greenhouse gases, but we need fossil fuels to move towards sustainable energy. Can you, can you see the complexity and the difficulties in this argument? Which is helpful for us, because we really like to come down on the black or white side of an argument and pick a side. It's not helpful to do that. Both of these things are important. Why? Because the atmospheric conditions we're creating are damaging to humans and animals and plant life, which is all of the stewardship that God has given to us. That's the complexity of the argument. It's made worse by our politics. Let me offer two quick statements. They may be controversial for some of you, but they are accurate. The first is that climate change is real, okay? Like, I, I, I guess some people are trying to restrain giggles, but some of you may not like this statement. Climate change is real. Let me give you the definition. This might help. Climate change, by definition, is a long-term shift in global or regional climate patterns largely caused by human beings. Okay, so overpopulation, deforestation, burning fossil fuels, these are things only humans can do. They're human actions. So by definition, that is climate change. Now you don't have to buy into it, the way climate change is communicated. You don't have to buy into every piece of data about climate change, but climate change itself is, is real, that humans are affecting the climate. Sorry, if you don't like that. Um, and any group of scientists worth their salt will agree to this to a minimum of 97% minimum, mostly 99 or 100% in any kind of research group. It's, it's actually not hard to find. I researched quite hard to find climate skeptics with stats, couldn't find them, couldn't find them. And in fact, there was one very clever website that I was looking through going, but I like these arguments. And then I realized it was skepticism about skepticism. I was like, you, <laughs> you got me. So denying that is actually quite bizarre. And, and it's, that's ignorance, it's foolish. You can see how that promotes a frustrated activism. But on the other hand, like I mentioned earlier, we do need fossil fuels. We can't get to renewable energy without using them. So the International Energy Agency says, for example, that the world would need to triple its renewable energy capacity within seven years to cut fossil fuel demand by just 20%. That's massive, that's basically impossible. You can see then what a significant shift this is. So even ending coal use, which is something people scream about and, and scream for, that disproportionately affects poorer nations. So it is one thing to say end coal use, but in reality, it's more complex than that as well. And it requires a lot from us. So activists tend to use unhelpful slogans like end fossil fuels because that grabs attention, but it also does fear mongering and sends people swinging to the other side. This, this is the problem. Anyway. Denying climate change or overemphasizing the immediacy of this ultimately leads to fatalism, which is this idea that we are just doomed regardless. So what we're left with is one side screaming as loudly as they can, and the other side with their eyes shut and their fingers in their ears. Neither of those is particularly attractive, neither of them is really linked to science, and they're definitely not linked to how we live out a theology of creation care as a Christian which is about sacrificial love for other human beings and honour and worship for God. Christians are not called to be foolish or fearful or fatalistic, but faith-filled, faith-filled about the future. We do not fear what is coming. We ask God what we can do about it. 
We use our hands. We set ourselves to a task. We believe in a future that is seen and gifted by God for His people who are called to live out their faith with their minds and their hands until Jesus comes again. So instead of denial or doom, we ask for divine wisdom and we go to the Scriptures. You with me? All right. Let me give you a more thorough theological vision, but briefly too. All right. The simple version, again, God is the creator. Humanity is made in His image. Our task is to rule all of creation. So, but number one, we're designed to be stewards, not rulers. The Hebrew word for rule, rodor, is really not about ruling as much as stewardship, caring. When you steward something, you take care of it on behalf of something, somebody else. So in Genesis 2.15, we hear God's statement again that we are stewards. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. It's not his, but he's responsible for caring for it. Okay, that's stewardship. The second point, the, oh, the steward of the king would care for the king's home on his behalf. And that's what we're meant to do with God's creation. Like Adam cared for Eden, we care for creation on God's behalf. Second point. The Trinity is all involved in creation. This is not like God the Creator got involved and Jesus and the Holy Spirit turned up and was like, oh, what's this? You know, <laughs> they were involved. In Genesis 1 2, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the surface of the water. In John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, we hear of Jesus' involvement in creation as well. And Psalm 33 6 affirms the Trinity's hand on creation, saying, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. And that creation. All belongs to God. That's point three. It all belongs to God. Psalm 24 verse one says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It all belongs to God's. He's the king, we're not. And Colossians 1.16 states, for by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. Right. So creation belongs to God. And number four, creation worships God. Creation worships God. So in the prophets, Isaiah 55, 12 says this, The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now, this is a metaphor, just to be clear. <laughs> Isaiah is using poetic language. But it's the sense that creation worships God by being creation. Like a tree doesn't wake up in the morning and go, I think I might be a cat today. Like that's not how it works. Was that a tree? <laughs> Do you know how I knew it was a tree and not a bush? Because of the bark. I couldn't. It's a... <laughs> All right. I mean, it was right there. Anyway, this is this idea that creation is involved in worship of God. We hear that echoed in the Psalms and Jesus' famous declaration in Luke that if his disciples weren't worshipping him, then even the rocks would cry out in worship because somebody's going to be worshipping Jesus. But creation worships God because God is not creation, but is seen in creation. That's point five. In Romans 1, Paul outlines the evil and stupidity of worshipping creation as if it were God. This includes things like paganism, Wicca, astrology, animism, chakras, crystal healing, palm reading, anything that takes something created and elevating it to an object of worship. Paul puts it this way, for his invisible attributes, that's God, his, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he, was, he has made. Quick time out. As you walked outside today and looked up and went, this is a glorious day. You are, there's a part of you worshipping instinctively, yeah. right? That's what he's talking about. 
As a result, people are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Now, Paul's point is something we've all experienced. Nature reflects God's glory. It is beautiful, powerful, majestic, but it's also very clearly created. Nature didn't create itself. And I, I don't say any of this to be mean to people that have sort of new age spirituality, but, but it's both idolatrous and dangerous and deeply, deeply unhelpful. Like it, it's not only it doesn't work, it's sin. It's an act of idolatry and rejection and denial of the power and glory of God. So if you're here and you do all those things, I, I don't condemn you, but you should stop immediately. Like just cut that stuff out right now. Whole nother sermon in that. Maybe another day. Point number six. Creation itself feels the pain of sin. Creation feels the pain of sin. In Romans 8, Paul just says this, our own sense of dislocation at being at home in our bodies and having alienation on earth, creation feels that too. This is what he says in verse 19, chapter 8, 19. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labour pains until now. And this is describing that sense of frustration that nature feels. While glorious, it lives under that burden of decay and death that we all do. Although in its beauty, it creates a sense of life and redemption out of it. So all creation waits for the return of Jesus and the revealing of all God's children because when that happens, creation itself will be restored to its original Eden-like state. One last theological point that's worth raising and that's going back to last week and the issue of the poor. I know I'm going fast, but we've just got a lot of ground to cover. Last week, Reverend Diane spoke brilliantly about God's love for the poor. Jump on the podcast and listen to it. And that extends to creation care because the poor and vulnerable are disproportionately affected by environmental issues, disproportionately. Okay, so people living in poverty are dependent on natural resources for farming, such as forests and oceans. That puts them on the front line of natural disasters, like bushfires and tsunamis. Crop production and water access, they're affected by environmental changes. The poor are being displaced at a high rate due to drought, floods and rising ocean levels. The poor are starving as food prices increase and they don't have the capacity, especially in urban areas, to keep up with that. And so the upshot is this. The World Bank is estimating that an additional 68 to 135 million people could be pushed into poverty this decade because of climate change. Now, the thing is about this is that over the last 50, 60, pretty much all through human history, we have been moving towards, even though we have more people in the world, the level of poverty is, is poverty is lowering, the, the level of living is, is rising until now. So it looks like so people will start to slip back into poverty, generational poverty because of this. That's, that's not acceptable. God loves and cares for the poor. It's, it's a constant call throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and the New. Like I'm not even going to bother giving you a scripture. Just Google it and you'll have a hundred. So to care for the environment is to care for the poor. They actually do go hand in hand. So what about Jesus? Well, there's this glorious word that really only gets used in the Bible, and it's the word zeal. 
It means a passion for, or embra- for embracing or pursuing something that genuinely matters. And it's a word that beautifully sums up Jesus' mission. In the Bible, we hear that zeal consumes Jesus as he turns the tables in the temple and he whips the money changers out of there. It was the zeal specifically for his father's house. This is where we go full circle. Jesus has a particular passion for the temple. That's the place where heaven met earth, where the holiness of God is contained on earth. But Jesus, of course, was that same temple. He is the place where heaven meets earth. Fully God, fully man. So he was the place where God was contained on earth. The flesh and blood of of, of humanity filled with the spirit walking around among us. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us of our bodies. Now that the Holy Spirit has been poured out into us, our bodies are living temples of the Spirit of God. What happens to Jesus as he's baptised? The Spirit of God comes down on him and he is filled with the Spirit of God. The same thing has now happened to us after Pentecost. All right, I might be moving a little bit too fast here. You're all living temples filled with the Spirit of God. It's good. All these messages that you have heard in this series that relate to the human body as we messages about AI and, and suicide and transgender ideologies and abortion and mental health that have gone all over the place and you've all sat there sweating. All of these challenge us with the question of what does God want us to do with our bodies? Or if this is what it means to be human, how then should we live? How should we behave? How do we live in the environment, in the creation that God has created for us and place us as stewards? Does zeal for God consume us for the bodies that contain our living temples in the same way that consumed Jesus? Do we care? Do we care about our own bodies in that way? But in a theology of creation care, that's actually not enough. We've got to expand our vision because the vision of the human body as a temple of God is still about us and our life and our body, even though it's lived out in community. But the vision of creation care is about the kingdom of God. And when Jesus came, he came to announce that the kingdom was here. The vision, a theological vision of creation care is, is about salvation for all creation, right? So Jesus came to give his life to save yours and it wasn't just about you. That's the classic thing we think of first, that salvation is about us, our salvation. Jesus loves me, and he does. And then we think about the salvation of others, because we're a plus one church, amen, right? We believe in other people and praying and chasing after the one and seeing them saved. And so that's a good thing to do. We take the Great Commission seriously. That naturally also leads us to think about the salvation of those who have gone before us and who will come after us. So it's generational, But then the third element of salvation is the whole kingdom of God, the redemption of all creation. That's what Romans 8 is talking about. Creation is groaning, subject to the stewardship of sinful human beings like me, trying to do our best, but probably not a whole lot of the time, who see the created world mostly as an object for consumption and greed rather than a reflection of the glory of God to be stewarded and cared for. So creation too awaits the full redemption that will come when Jesus returns. And the final vision of creation in the book of Revelation is where the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descends from heaven. Heaven meets earth from God and everything is made new. Heavenly bodies for all of us, thank the Lord, and the earth and all created things made new. Heaven meets Eden, it's paradise city, right? That's the vision of the kingdom of God, the end point. But here's my point. The zeal Jesus had for his father's house is also a zeal for the whole kingdom of God. 
And because that salvation includes the restoration of all creation, that includes a salvation for creation, includes a zeal, a passion that we must have as followers of Jesus for creation. As a friend of mine said, as we were talking about this this week, he said, surely Christians should do this best and most passionately. Yeah, surely we should under the best stewardship we have. So what should we do in response? I want to get practical, but not too specific because you can Google way better ideas than I would give you. I'm here to preach, not not give tips on separating your soft plastics and hard plastics. So I, I would advise you to ask that question. What can I do? That's an important question. What can I do? Not the person next to me, me. What can I do? And I, I think, by the way, the answer is just a little bit more than I'm currently doing. Like, not up here, relax. Just, just a little bit more than I'm currently doing. But here's a few broad godly principles for you. Number one, think about the generations to come. Okay, don't, don't, don't buy into narratives of doom. God has a plan for the future of the earth and we're part of it. Number two, don't get greedy or overconsume. Just buy and use what you need. In the Lord's Prayer where Jesus says that we should pray, give us this day our daily bread. Not like bulk shopping at Costco, you know? I'm not trying to have a go at that specifically. I tell you what I will have a go at, the the toilet paper panic we all went through at the start of COVID. But that's an example of we get greedy and take stuff and other people are like, but I can't have my version of daily bread from that because of your greed. You see how that's, that's disadvantaging us? Don't make decisions of convenience. Do your best to reuse and recycle, right? That's their acts of stewardship. Don't, don't be overly convenient and go, it's easy for me to buy this. It probably is. What's, what's the cost? Like, what's the effect of that? The fourth thing is use your voice and your vote to make change happen. Challenge where the government is in power, whatever government is in power, to make better ecological decisions for the future of our planet. And the fifth thing is just do what you can. Like, don't, don't get overwhelmed. I, th- I think... Sometimes, like, I come across this idea and I'm like, I can't do everything. It's like, no, you can't do everything. God's not expecting you to do everything. He's given you a task and you some time to do what you can. So think of this classic starfish story that I'm sure I've told here before. Little boys walking along a beach, collecting starfishes that have all been washed up on the beach and trying to throw them back one at a time. And somebody says to him, you can't do all of that. It's impossible. He's like, well, it'll make a difference to this one. That's what you're doing in environmental care, in creation care. You're saying, I'm making a difference to this right now. All right, maybe if I sell a car and we go down to one car as a family, that's not going to change the world, but it improves it. Maybe if I, if I buy secondhand rather than new, that's not going to change the world, but it, but it improves it. And if enough people do the same thing and we petition for change, things might actually change. But if we don't do anything, I think the key is not to be driven by shame or anxiety or consumerism, but worship. How can you glorify God through the way you care for the environment? Uh, Band, you guys can get back up. I think I'm going to ignore that part. (laughs) This next part. I just, uh, we need to remember, friends, to be on the front line of environmental conservation without losing our convictions for the gospel. One of them does not stop the other, right? We're not swinging from left to right here. We're wiser than that. Why? Because our identity is not in politics. 
but in Christ. Right? And Christ challenges our allegiance to political parties, challenges our, our, our sense of what we understand and know from what we've experienced and been taught and picked up from the world. And so that's why again and again here in Encounter, we try and, and have the public reading of the words so that again and again we're pointing to our need to go, where is the best source of wisdom for life? It is in this text. God revealed to us. It's not about my wisdom. It is about what God is saying, His vision for life. It's for the kingdom of God. The gospel points to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is for all of creation. So the zeal we have should not actually be for the environment. It's not, certainly not for our personal comfort. It should be zeal for our Father's house, for His whole kingdom, everything. The heavens declare the glory of God. Everything we have is the glory of God's. So at the end of this series, we're really not just talking about creation care, but it's a nice place to land and certainly a much gentler place to land than a few of the other sermons we've preached. We're talking about zeal, about stewarding a passion for the Word of God and the Kingdom of God. And stewarding zeal is an action, it's a choice that every one of us has to make. Stewarding zeal is about loving the house of the Father more than we love our personal comforts or conveniences. Because chances are some of those personal comforts or conveniences are blocking us from what God is longing to pour into us and lead us to. So church, where are we going with this? We are talking about trying to understand the meaning of life, not through our best efforts, but through what God says it is. We are talking about loving and honouring God with everything we have, with a deep love and care for others and a personal sense of humility and teachability that causes us, as we sang before, to lay it down, to be on our knees, to be saying, God, what do you want? Fill me afresh. Start me new. I've been running dry, Lord, and I need the zeal for your, father, for your house, God, that Jesus had. I need to be filled with your Spirit afresh. I need to start again today. Maybe not even because I've been especially sinful, but maybe I've just been stuck in neutral. For so many of us, that's what happens. We just get stuck in neutral. It's what comfort does. It's the hidden blessing of suffering in our lives is it jolts us out of neutral and forces us to look around. And we're meant to look to the Lord. God has a plan and a purpose for the future, for your future, for my future, for all of creation. And right now, for some of you, I believe He's calling you to rededicate your life to Him. To say, God, I trust you afresh. I trust your vision for all of creation. When I ask, what does it mean to be a human? How do I live it out? How do I do life? These big questions of life. Who am I? What am I here for? I'm going to go to you with that question. And I'm going to restart that tonight. Why don't we stand together in this moment? And I don't want to lead us in a moment of recommitment to the environment. I'd like you to go home and do some work on that. That'd be really wise. What I'd like to do is lead people towards a renewal of zeal. Zeal for the Father's house zeal for the Holy Spirit to fill them, zeal 
for the fire of God, zeal to see lives saved. People brought into the Kingdom of God to know Jesus personally who have never known Him before. There's no better time than right now. So why don't we pray together? I just wanna encourage you, would you close your eyes and bow your head?